to another edition of the Vine Conversations podcast. Today, it is going to be sort of a conversation, but mainly, not mainly, only me talking. Uh, but I am hearing and receiving some questions. So in that sense, I'm going to do my best to answer some questions that have to do with the sermon that was preached this past Sunday. And this past Sunday, I preached a message on... 1 John 5, 1, which has the phrase being born of God, have been born of God. And I wanted to answer the question, what does it mean to be born of God? Jesus um, says that those who have been given the right to become children of God have been born of God. That's John, the gospel of John verses 1 sorry, chapter one, verse 13. In addition, Jesus talks to Nicodemus in the gospel of John chapter three um, about being born again, same idea as being born of God. And this leads us to the doctrine of election or somewhat synonymous, the doctrine of predestination. And this is something that the Bible clearly teaches Um, for many of us, it raises some philosophical issues that are hard to make sense of. Um, but from the outset, I want to affirm that, um, we need to seek to understand the Bible on its own terms, even if the philosophical objections don't seem necessarily satisfactory. Um, There's a lot we could talk about there, um, but I'll leave it at that for others. Um, I don't have a PhD in philosophy, but I just know we get into really challenging um, territory if we seek to impose our human fallen philosophical categories on top of the Bible, as opposed to receiving what the Bible says and seeking to obey it and submit to it. So, This uh, past Sunday led to some great questions um, about the doctrine of predestination or what it it means to be born of God. And I'm going to do my best to answer some of these. Um, Theologians have been writing about this stuff for 2,000 years now, so I'm not going to be the one to give the definitive answer, but I am one of the pastors here, and so I want to take that um, serious. I mean, I could hand you out books and just be like, read this, read this, and I can do that too, Uh, but I would love to... um, as a shepherd here, as a pastor here, um, love for you to hear these in my own voice uh, because I care about the people at the Vine Church and want to do my best to address the questions as they come up. And if we need to lean on other resources, um, we always have to lean on other resources. Anything, nothing I'm going to say here today is my own thought. Um, I'm just um, regurgitating things that I have learned and been shown and been taught. So that kind of like um, footnote is always important to understand, like any of my preaching, anything in my counseling, anything I say, 
to, to anybody in the lobby, even it's like most of that or all of that did not originate out of my own head. Um, as if I get the credit, it's all footnoted to other people and other influences. And that's just part of what it means to be a human being. So, um, I'm not going to give footnotes for everything that I say here, but just know that that that's just the case with all of us. And if we want to go deeper, if any of you want to go deeper on, um, what, uh, where I, I, I've been influenced and, and how I, how I read the Bible the way I do and why, um, love to talk to you more about that. All right. First question. Good question. Um, are feeling your need for God and God electing you two sides of the same coin or are they separate events? So I think what this person is saying is someone becomes aware of this need for Jesus, this need for um, a resolution to the cosmic tension of a holy God and my sin. If there is a, an awareness of a need for God, does that mean that God has done a prior work in my heart to even have a, to be aware of a need? And in some sense, I would say yes, or maybe, um, or no, <laughs> depends on what happens next. So you could have a, feel a need for God when the plane is going down like the cliche, there's no atheists during a plane crash. Um, I'm not sure if that's a cliche, but that is something that I find myself saying. Um, what's the, what's the phrase? Um, I think that's the phrase. Anyway, you guys get the idea. There's no atheists when the plane is going down. So you could feel your need for God in that moment. And then all of a sudden the engines of the plane come back on and everything's fine. The plane lands and you're like, Oh, peace out. Like, I don't need God. Like, Oh, that was just a psychological um, blip on the map in light of the horrendous circumstances I found myself in. But if you feel your need for God, you hear the gospel and you respond in repentance and faith and you go to your grave trusting in Jesus and not your own merit, not your own works to save you. And you delight in him um, beyond your own self. Like you, you don't ultimately worship other things. You worship God and you want to turn from sin and turn toward Jesus. Cast yourself on his mercy as a response to this need, then what that shows is God has done a work in your heart to awaken you to see that Jesus is desirable, that Jesus is worth it. And so in one sense, yes, they are the, the two sides of the same coin. Another way to say it is if you hear the gospel preached and back in the day, this was way more um, common was to have altar calls. And if you hear the gospel and the altar call is come down forward and we're going to ask you to kneel and pray as a symbol of saving faith, of trusting Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What I believe the Bible teaches is that you got saved, like God regenerated your heart before your, before your behind left the, the chair to get up and walk down before, before you got out of your seat. 
God had regenerated your heart so that you could even hear so that the hardness of your heart was overcome so that the deafness of your ears was replaced with hearing. And so that's another way to look at it. So yeah, I think that's a, that's what I'll say about that question. Next question. If we are predestined when evangelizing, are we lying sometimes if we say you can be saved since if they are not part of the elect, they can't be. This goes back to what I talked about in my sermon, just about what's the point of evangelism. And there's certain information that God has and only God has that he doesn't give to us, nor will he ever give to us. And that is his secret will that we're going to talk about in a second, the difference between his revealed will and his secret will hold on to that thought, but his secret will, meaning the things that he ordains that will come to pass. He doesn't give that information to us. And so it's not our responsibility, nor will it ever be our responsibility to know who is going to be saved and who's not upon hearing the preaching of the gospel. So we know in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing. There's more than that to be said to explain theologically. The Bible teaches us more about how someone comes to faith by hearing the word of the gospel preached, but it's never less than that. And so, um, The whole point here is who's predestined and who's not is not our business, nor will it ever be. What is our business is knowing that faith comes by hearing and so preach, scatter the seed. Just like I said in in the sermon on Sunday, we're like farmers who can't cause plants to grow, but we can scatter seed. We are responsible for taking the seed and chucking it as far and wide as it will go onto Uh, the field, if you'll endure the analogy. And so um, predestination is not something that squashes evangelism. In fact, it emboldens it. It, it enlivens it. It gives it more of fuel for the fire of evangelism because God does save people and we'll never know who they are, but it will be explained when they come to faith. If they come to faith and we'll, then we know, oh, that person um, uh, God was working on their heart. God granted them repentance. See second Timothy two twenty four and 25. God granted them repentance. See the book of acts and the story of Lydia and where it says God opened her heart to believe, um, lots of other examples, but we'll never know. And those people may prove that they were not elect by God if they do not persevere. And the Bible talks a lot about that um, as well, the, 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 the category of perseverance. And it will be proven ultimately who is elect through, did they continue to believe? Um, and so that ra- might raise some other questions in your mind, um, but we could do a Bible study sometime on what the Bible says about perseverance. If and how that relates to predestination, if anybody is interested in that. Um, next question. How do we interpret verses such as 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, where he says, God desires all people to come to know him. If that is his desire and he is doing the predestination, why are not all saved? That's a great question. 
Second uh, Peter three nine says something very similar. Um, I'm turning to First Timothy right now, and because I, I want to read it for us. First Timothy two three and four. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So the context here is Paul is writing to Timothy about. Um, what should go on in the gathered church. And he kind of makes this, this comment kind of like off offhand comment that doesn't, it's just, it's kind of seems like something that Paul writes in this letter um, kind of offhand, but he does that a lot and it's great. So he says this first uh, Timothy two, three and four, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if God desires all to be saved, and we know from the rest of the Bible that not all are not saved, is it possible to say, is it scripturally warranted to say that God doesn't get some things that he desires? Well, in one sense, yes. And this is where theologians have talked about what I just said before, the revealed will of God and the secret will of God. So in one sense, uh, you could talk about another way to frame it would be the moral will of God, like the things that God has made very, very clear to us. Like, I don't want you to murder each other. That's the moral will of God. I want you to be forgiving of one another. That's the moral will of God. Um, I want you to be generous. Uh, that's the moral will of God. See first Timothy chapter six, the secret will of God, or another way of saying it is the providential will of God is those things that God ordains that will come to pass that he does not share with those that are his creation so that we could give a, a ton of examples. I think Joseph is a classic example. In the story of Joseph, we see that God's revealed will was one thing. Hey, don't, don't lie about your brother and beat him up really bad and throw him in a pit. Like that was them going against God's revealed will, right? Very, very clear. But God's secret will was that in the disobedience of Joseph's brothers, there was this greater thing that happened. And that's what Joseph refers to at the end of his life. It's like there was a greater thing that happened and I couldn't see it at the time. He was sold into slavery in Egypt, but he gained authority over the land and he was able to save his whole family. So there's clearly things that, um, that go on that we have no idea what's happening or why it's happening. And I don't know if we'll ever know sometimes. Sometimes we can make sense of it um, as our life uh, continues on, but sometimes we won't. But we always have the, the, the moral will of God, the revealed will of God. So in that sense, given those categories, here's the question, is it, are there things that God desires that he doesn't get?
And I think the answer is yes, he desires our obedience, but he doesn't always get it right. But ultimately all that he wills, like his sovereign will of decree, um, providential will, will come to pass. And so that's a great segue to the final question. Does God predestine sin? Genesis one says that Adam and Eve were allowed to eat from any tree, but not the tree of knowing good and evil, but they disobeyed. I know they were responsible for their sin, but was it, but was it God's will for them to commit that sin? It's a really challenging question. And here's the biblical paradox that we have to come to terms with in order to make sense of the Bible. This is the paradox, and I'll give you some examples, but this is it. God forbids, sometimes God forbids the things he brings about. So here's a great example of this. Jesus is in the garden and he's, and he's crying out to the Lord before his crucifixion. If there's any other way, may this pass from me, this cup of drinking your wrath, may it pass from me. But he says, not my will, but your will be done as your will. So what does as your, as, as your will mean? Well, it means what you sovereignly planned would come to happen. But is there sin all over that sovereign plan? Absolutely. God ordained this would come to pass, but in it coming to pass, there's crazy amounts of sin. Like it's a sin to blaspheme the son of God. It's a sin to brutalize the son of God. So God ordains it to come to pass. It will come to pass. And the means by which it will come to pass is going to be shot through with sin. And in one sense, God hates that sin. In another sense, it's part of the plan. Another example would be, um, and, and again, this is a paradox. You, you, you will reach the limits of your understanding if you think about it too hard, but uh, the Bible simply asserts it doesn't explain it. Like I said in my sermon, let me give you another example that I didn't get to uh, in the sermon on Sunday that talks about this, that God can forbid the things that he brings about. God can ordain that sin may come to pass without being liable to the charge that he is sinful. So this is the believers are praying. They've been persecuted like crazy um, in the book of Acts chapter four. And he says in, in verse 20, or they, they pray, this is their prayer in verse 27. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Okay, great sinners, horrible sinners. They, they both sinned against Jesus greatly. Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, they, they sinned against, against Jesus in putting him to death. But here's the, the sovereignty of God's side. So that's the, the revealed will of God. But here's the, the secret will of God. Verse 20, um, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take 
place. So, so let me read that again. They're praying this to God about what has just happened to Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And now um, they're just crying out to God in light of them being treated in similar ways. For truly in the city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Okay, so they sinned. God hates sin. But verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God predestined that sin would come to pass through their actions. Yet at the same time, God holds them accountable for for doing exactly what they wanted to do. And they did want to do it. How does that all make sense in strict fallen human philosophical categories? I can't explain that. But the Bible simply asserts it. And there's mystery here. That, that the, again, the Bible doesn't explain, it simply asserts. And my hunch is because there are things in God's mind that are far too great for us to fathom. And I can't say it. His ways are not our ways. I can't say it any better than, than Paul at the end of Romans 11, um, where he says this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So Paul just stands back from all this. I mean, he he just got done writing about a lot of these things. I mean, he he answers these questions better than I do. Um, Some of them, if you read Romans 9 and think about it. And he just gets to the end of it and it's like, man, I've laid some things out. I've given the answers as best I can. Some of them aren't maybe satisfying in terms of like, if you want like deep, rational, uh, spreadsheet, mathematical type answers, he comes to the end of himself. He, he's, he, he hits his head on the ceiling of his human brain, but he, he steps away from that and says, God is God and we are not. His ways are higher than our ways. Um, he has revealed things to us that we can't understand. And there's some things here that don't seem to make sense to us in a, in a logical human way, but yet you are God and you reveal them. And, and so we will worship you and we will love you and we will trust you because we know that you're good. And at the end of the day, that's the thing I want us to rest in that even if we hit our, our head on the ceiling of our finite understanding, um, what we can understand is that Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so scriptures reliable. It tells us the truth about Jesus and that he loves us. And at the end of the day, that's what you want to rest on. Um, there's going to be mysteries. There always will be. Um, and, and at the end of the day, we want to read our Bible and do our best to understand what it says and to follow it and to trust it. And so um, that's probably good for today. I, I really appreciate these questions. Um, myself and, and elders are always available. City group leaders are available. And so um, keep it coming. Uh, this, is, this is healthy. And so thanks for these questions. If there's any more, um, love to hear what they are. So signing off for today. I love the Vine Church. Love the Vine family. We'll see you guys soon.